Welcome to All Axes, brought to you by Mazak, a podcast where we interview the people helping to shape the future of manufacturing to give you a better understanding of where we're heading and why. We believe that with an understanding of technology, workforce, and market trends, you can always grow your business. My name is Teelan Henderson, and I'll be your host. Today's episode will be a continuation of our conversation with Jim O'Toole, manager of the machine shop of Team Penske in Mooresville, North Carolina. If you missed our last episode, please go back and listen to it first. It's absolutely worth your time. However, if you have listened, please enjoy the rest of our look inside of Team Penske. How many cars does uh, Team Penske support? Yeah, so when we talk about number of cars, I guess we'll start with car numbers in terms Mm -hmm. of what's on the track on on any given race weekend. And then after that, we'll touch on, I guess, how many chassis make up our fleet in order to um, build up to that car number of what we see on the track. So when we talk about car numbers and who's racing on a race weekend, in the NASCAR Cup Series, we have Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, and Ryan Blaney, and they all run a full-time effort, which is a 36-race season. In the Xfinity Series, we have Austin Sindrick, who runs a full-time effort. Um, And we also run another car that's uh, part-time. In the IndyCar Series, um, we have Joseph Newgarden, Will Power, and Simon Pagano. Um, They all run a full-time effort. And for the Indy 500 this year, we're running a fourth car, which will be Elio Castroneves. And also for the Indy Grand Prix, there's some exciting news that came out a few months ago that Scott McLaughlin, who races for us in the uh, Virgin Atlantic Supercar Series in Australia, will actually be coming over Mm -hmm. to drive the car in the month of May at the Indy Grand Prix. In the sports car world, or for the IMSA series, we have a two-car team with Juan Pablo Montoya and Dane Cameron, and we also have um, Elio Castroneves and Ricky Taylor. And there's also some what we call endurance drivers who help out in that program throughout the year as you do races like the 24 Hours of Daytona or the 12 Hours of Sebring where where they have drivers that are continuously swapping out in order to be able to keep the cars going for 24 hours at a time. So when you look at that, what does that mean in terms of how many cars we have rolling around on the floor here in Mooresville? Well, on the sports car side, it's it's very limited. You, you really only have one car for each team. And in between race weekends, which they're relatively spread out a couple weeks in between, they do a full turn on that car where they, you know, replace the engine, rebuild it essentially, break it all the way down to the tub that's available. Um, in the IndyCar series, it's about the same. We have basically one tub or one chassis for each car number, and then they have a backup tub as well. Um, But when they go to a race weekend, you know, that backup car is not built up or anything like that. It's not like if they were to crash a car in in practice that they could just roll another one off the hauler and start racing. They have to transfer a lot of components from the primary car onto that backup chassis. And that leads to a lot of logistics for them where, there's some times where they're going directly from one racetrack to the next, and they're doing their teardown and buildup at the track for the following race weekend. Oh, wow. So it's it's a little bit different than how the NASCAR side works. And the NASCAR side, there's 2020 NASCAR implemented some new rules when it, when it comes to how many, a quantity of cars that you could have per each race team. So there's 
they have a lot of 10 different chassis designs per organization. So what I mean by that is when you see um, different racetrack configurations, whether it be a road course or a short track or an intermediate mm-hmm. track or a super speedway, all of those chassis are different from one another in some way, shape, or form. So their configuration, whether it's you know front clip or rear clip, are a little bit different in order to provide performance advantages over the opposing type of racetrack that you're talking about. So you have 10 different chassis designs allowed per organization, organization mm-hmm. meaning Penske, not each individual race team. And those are all submitted at the beginning of this year and they cannot be changed for the rest of this year. So the the drawings that you had released with that chassis configuration, that's it. That's all you got. So from a chassis standpoint, we're really talking about just reorder um, reorders of components and doing recurring work. Now each car number can have 12 chassis in its inventory. So throughout the course of the year, um, you know, you have roughly 36 chassis in circulation on the NASCAR side. That's just for the Cup Series. Then the Xfinity Series is about the same. And basically, as cars crash or mileage out, they can be replaced. And all the new chassis or um, certain level of repairs, all of that needs to be recertified by NASCAR before you can use it. So the, the NASCAR effort, when you look at the real estate here in Mooresville, the NASCAR effort definitely takes up the most of that, as well as the quantity of parts that are produced. You know, we're about a 70-30 split where 70% of what we do is is really for our NASCAR program. And that's just because of the way of the way it works. There's a lot of stuff, you know, when those cars come back from the track, there's a lot of components that are not usable. They're a one-time, they're a one-time race component. So that stuff is constantly being remanufactured, you know, uh, over the course of the year. So with that many chassis and that many components that are one-offs, uh, what kind of lot sizes do you deal with on a regular basis? So it's, it's, it's diverse, you know, um, Mm -hmm. our biggest lot size is probably around 800 parts at a time or so. Um, you know, a lot of hardwares, bungs, washers, things like that. Um, and then we go all the way down to one part, you know, I spoke earlier about our carbon shop. Um, you know, we manufacture molds and and patterns and things for them that they use to produce carbon fiber components. So we make one at a time. Um, so it's, it's a very high mix, you know, what I would call low volume environment. I mean, you know, 800 components obviously for us is a lot, but out in the out in the job shop or production world, um, 800 components isn't isn't anything that someone would consider a high production lot size. You know, so when you look at All our last, right, la, you know, last year when you look at you know we produced about 60,000 parts through the shop. Um, okay. But if you were to break that down, I mean, it was somewhere around 3,000 different part numbers that. That that's a made lot of setups, up. you know. So yes, yeah. that's that's where there's a few things you know that we've really strived to do, like having um, standardized um, tool catalogs in our mills, so that we can try to, as we're programming things and as we're developing processes, we can try to work around stuff that's already in the machine so we can focus on that, you know, SMED principle, single minute exchange uh, of dies of being able to go from one setup to the next with, with little downtime because we look at it as, okay, maybe this quarter inch end mill with, you know, 
a 37 degree helix isn't the perfect tool to be doing this but when we have to make one of something it's 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 more value added for us to just be able to roll into the next component rather than worry about optimizing tool life or or optimizing you know speeds and rpms because just to be able to get it done and get it rolling is, is our end goal right and when you do something like that when you set up for uh manufacturing like that not only do you cut down on um setup time but that that's got to help with uh bridging things like bridging skills gaps and and managing your workforce a fair amount right yeah yeah and and the other thing there too is is it gives everybody I guess stability would be the word of, of understanding, you know, where to be looking for a certain thing. You know, they know, Hey, this is what I have in the machine. And as I'm working on, on said part, I know, you know, what I'm going to be utilizing. And, and, and that's where, you know, when we look at our programming group as their programming parts, and then our shop floor guys who are programming in Mazatrol, we're trying to work off of a common thread there of saying, this is what we have for a tooling package. Do with it what you can as you have the need for specific things such as drills, taps, reamers, things like that. Yes, that stuff can get integrated into place, but the one thing we do is we say, okay, these tool numbers in the carousel, those are off limits. We want to keep those in there at all points in time unless absolutely 100% have to be removed. And then as the programming group releases new programs, you know, they're not sticking a drill in pocket number seven because pocket number seven is a quarter inch end mill, you know, and, and so it, it gives everybody right. a little bit of, I guess, uh, guidelines as to how to make sure we can keep things moving quickly in the right direction. So when you have a culture where all of your employees are working towards a goal that's so tangible uh, as a race win, uh, what do you think your greatest asset is in a situation like that? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we have, I guess I would say, a large toolbox here. And in that toolbox, you have a lot of tools. You have, you know, a machine shop, you have a carbon fiber shop, you have within that machine shop, you have CNC equipment, manual equipment, you have cam programming, you have Mazatrol. But what that all boils down to is, is none of those tools can be utilized without the employees and the personnel to put it to work and, and turn it into a successful venture. You know, um, Roger Penske has a saying that is something that you know we truly live by here and that's efforts equal results and every year at the beginning of the race season we get a coin that has this year's year on it and it has that that saying on the back and and the people in the shop truly feel that way and you can see it from how much passion they carry and what they do on a day-to-day basis and and one of the things that 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 impresses me the most is how uh, personal most of the employees take it when they're asked to do something or they're asked to produce. They will go above and beyond without you having to say, hey, you know, I'm going to mandate overtime to do this, this, and this. It's There's a little bit more self-governance because you have that required due date, and they have the passion and the desire to make the team successful. So having that immediate kind of um, report card on a weekend basis is a great thing and and I can't count the number of times that we win a race and you know 
the the employees that work in the shop they text me or I text them or my boss texts me or oh, whatever that's great whatever that is to just congratulate one another and then we come in that Monday morning and everyone's patting each other on the back and when we don't win everybody's kind of picking each other up and saying what can we do different to, to make this work so the people by far are the most important asset that we have here at Penske Racing and you know their ability to continue to leverage the technologies that we have and continue to build their skill sets is what makes us successful. It's not just the driver or just the crew chief. It boils all the way down to, to everybody in the shop getting those cars ready to go on, a, on a, any given weekend. Well, that's so, it's so easy to think about a race team as just the driver and the crew chief and the pit crew. It's, it, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Every, it, it matters so much to have everyone else behind it, and that's all under the surface. That, that's cool. That's a nice way to think about it. And, and the, you know, everyone always asks when it's the off-season. You know, we go to Homestead, the season's over. Everyone says, what do you guys do on the off-season? The people in the production facility, not just the machine shop and everything in the production group, but everyone in the shop, we all the have things to do. We're, we're yeah. typically in the machine shop. We're busier in the off season than we are during the race season. That's when we see our highest level of overtime because we have more time to plan for those long-term projects. You know, it's, it's a way it's, it's much more of a ramp up to make sure that we're ready for the following race season. So, and everyone, again, even when you don't have that excitement of that immediate report card, they understand that those three months of preparation to get us to the Daytona 500 will all be worth it if we can succeed in winning that race. All right, great. Well, hey, uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate really appreciate you guys taking the time to to ask some questions about what we do here at Penske and, and you know, how, uh, how Mazak help, helps lead to our success on the track. I want to thank Jim for joining us today on All Axes. Be on the lookout for future episodes where we continue our in-depth look to Team Penske. Be sure to subscribe to All Axes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, or you can always visit our website at mazakusa.com for the latest episode.